Let's open with a word of prayer and let's dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. We ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. Lord, I thank you for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by divine appointment. And Lord, we know that the word of God is not just something we study, but Lord, it's something that we need to apply to our lives. I pray we'd leave here knowing you better and loving you more. I pray we would leave here encouraged, exhorted, even rebuked if necessary. So give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said. So Ezra comes right after Chronicles, as you know. We spent quite a long time in First and Second Chronicles, a lot of chapters. And Chronicles was instructions given by Ezra to the children of Israel in Babylon who were going to be coming back to Jerusalem. Now, why were they in Babylon? Because they had disobeyed God. They'd gotten caught up in idolatry. So God took them out of, out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, and they spent 70 years in captivity in Babylon. After 70 years, Ezra is about them returning back to their home. Now, what's interesting is after 70 years, most of the people from Judea and, and from Judah and Israel decided they didn't want to go home. They were happy living amongst the idols. They got so used to it that they no longer had a fear of God and no longer was God the priority in their life. It's only a small percentage. We don't know exactly how, uh, what percentage, but we know it's a little under 50,000 people come back out of probably millions that left. And so it's kind of sad, it's tragic. And then we saw last week as we began to look at it, I told the message last week, if you were here, God's will, God's way, and God's time. And we saw how while many are called, few will respond. God will use even those that are lost to bring about his perfect will. We saw how while King Nebuchadnezzar was ruling, people like Daniel and others were in captivity for 70 years. And then God allowed Cyrus, who was Persian, to come and overthrow Babylon. And he was the one that said, okay, you guys can go home. Not only can you go home, but I'm going to give you the resources you need to go home and rebuild your city. So we saw last week that about 50,000 people set out to take a 900-mile trek back to, to uh, Jerusalem. Now imagine walking 900 miles through the desert, knowing that when you get there, all you're going to find is a city in ruins. Because when Babylon took over, they literally burnt the city to the ground. There was nothing left temple was gone that God used Solomon to build. All the homes were gone. The walls were destroyed. So how many guys would like to sign up for that? We're going to have you walk 900 miles through the desert uh, to a place out in the middle of Nevada somewhere with nothing in it, and we're going to let you rebuild it. Well, praise God for those who went back. And we saw that where God guides, God provides as the Holy Spirit led them to go, they went. And then we saw our God is a God of order and detail. Now, the, if you have your outline for tonight, uh, chapter 2 is 70 verses. It's a genealogy, the entire thing, pretty much. But what it's give, telling us here, and I love it, that it's in the Bible. Anything that's in the Bible is in the Bible for a reason. Amen? God doesn't just throw stuff in there. Now, why is this genealogy there? Let me tell you why. Because God invited, prompted all of the children of Israel to come home. And now he's going to give us a list of who actually chose to come home. So God knows who's being obedient and who's being faithful and who will respond. And here's the reality. All of us have a calling upon our life, and some of us are being faithful to it, and some of us are more comfortable in the world, and we're not allowing ourselves to be used by the Lord in the way he would like to use us. So you'll notice that when somebody obeys him, God takes note. So chapter two, the entire chapter is just him taking note of all the families that came, 
all the individuals that came. Then it's all these people that went to certain cities, back to their old cities to help rebuild them. And then we're going to also see uh, that there's great joy in worship. I mean, again, when we serve the Lord and when we obey the Lord, it's, uh, it's always a blessing. We'll see also the temple workers, the priests, the Levites, and the servants that went back, and about 49,000 people, almost 50,000 people. So point number one is those who respond to God's call to come back to the land of promise, many are called, few respond. And then Ezra 3, we'll, we're going to spend most of our time tonight. We'll go through the genealogies fairly quickly. Uh, but give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Amen. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. That's why I tell Ezra chapter 3. And we're going to see the making the worship of the true and living God, the priority above all else. So they're going to come 900 miles. And when they get there, there are still enemies in the land. And you would think the first thing they would do would be to build a wall. Or the first thing they would do would be build trenches or prepare something. That's not what they do. You would think they would build homes for themselves because otherwise they're going to be camping out in the dirt. That's not the first thing they do. The first thing that they do is they rebuild the altar so they can worship God and make sacrifices. We saw this with Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29 where he became king. And the first thing he did, even though the enemies were on the doorstep all around him, he didn't, he didn't worry about the enemy he chose to make God the priority. Guys, as believers, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Amen? And too often we can be distracted by the things of this world that take us off track, and we're going to see that when they arrive there, there would be a temptation to recognize the mess, maybe even want to go home, if nothing else, to at least protect my family and myself from the enemies that are coming, but instead they make worship of the true and living God the priority. Number two, we're going to see there is great joy and worship that comes from serving and obeying the Lord. Those that begin to serve the Lord and are worshiping the Lord, we're going to see even though they're in the desert, even though they don't have houses built yet, even though the walls are still crumbled, as they begin to worship the Lord, we're going to see incredible joy and they're going to be breaking into worship, and they're going to be praising God. Because guys, sometimes we need to realize that when the Lord is all you have, you realize he's all you need. Amen. And we recognize what a blessing, what a joy it is, because for 70 years, they could not make sacrifices. For 70 years, they could not worship. So most of these people that have come have never worshiped in their life, at least not out loud. They've never made sacrifices. There was no, the only thing around them in Babylon was idolatry. So they've gotten away from the idolatry, and now they're in a place where they can worship God at the top of their lungs. And guess what? They do it. And they're in a place where they can make sacrifices, and they do it. They get back to serving the Lord and the joy and worship that comes from serving Him, being able to openly and boldly worship God. And by the way, no one's a, uh, exempt from serving. We all have gifts. And then if uh, time permits, Lord willing, I pray we'll get to point number three. Now, I'll, I'll share with you right ahead of time. When I get to this point, I'm probably going to be super emotional. My wife and I had a long talk about this last point, because what you're going to see in this last point of it is you're going to have people seeing that the new temple is going to be built, and all that's there is an altar and rubble all around it. And all the young people are exciting and praising God. And the older people who saw the previous temple are all weeping. 
Because they had seen Solomon's temple and they had seen how grand it was. And now they're looking and all there is is this bare, small altar that's been built for sacrifices and a bunch of rubble all around them. And they don't have, you know, the things that are needed to build anything close to what Solomon built. In today's dollars, it's estimated that Solomon's temple would cost five to eight billion dollars to create. So it was glorious. And so they had seen it glorious and now they come back and see it the way that it is. And so the ones who've escaped idolatry are just excited to be in God's presence and any altar works. They're not worried about what the building looks like, what it's going to look like. But those who have seen it, beautiful, weep. And I think what happens, and this has been taking place with my wife and I, we talked about this at length tonight. You know, the last couple of years since Mark died, we spent a lot of time looking back. Spent a lot of time looking back. And it's hard not to. And you know what it does? It, 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 it's just heavy on your heart. You're always looking back. And the Bible tells us, you know, what, did, what did Paul say after he would, was a murderer, right? Before he got saved, he said, this one thing I do, leaving that which is behind, I press onward to the upper call in Christ Jesus. I'm not saying we should forget our son, but what happens is if you keep looking back to where the heartache is, it's hard to have joy going forward. Amen? Amen? And, we'll, and Lord willing, we'll see that tonight's text. So let's begin there in Ezra chapter 2. And usually I read them all, probably not going to happen. Um, I always feel like if it's in the Bible, I should read it. And this, is, this would be a humility pill. So let's take a look here, looking at those who respond to God's call to come back to the land of promise. Many are called, few respond. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, now, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Now we're going to notice that he literally knows every single person that came back. Millions left, less than 50,000 come back. The Lord's going to name them all because he sees every one of them that has been faithful. And we're going to see entire families coming back but we're going to see a vast majority of the people don't respond to God's calling. It's, and for us as believers, it's an exhortation for us. It's really easy to get comfortable in this world. Amen? It's real easy. First of all, if you're the poorest person in California, you're in the top 1% of wealth of this entire world. We're very, we have more than we need. We have plenty of everything we've got. If you've got a place to go to sleep tonight and food in your fridge, you're, you know, you're, you're a blessed person. Amen? We've got plenty. But here's the problem. Sometimes when we have so much, we cease to be humble, broken, and desperate before God. And so what took place is they're in Babylon. And yeah, it's filled with idolatry, but it was a wealthy, wealthy nation. After 70 years, they've gotten jobs there. They're serving there. They're involved there. And it's a lot easier just to stay here where it's comfortable than to get out of my comfort zone and go 900 miles and have to rebuild an entire city and face enemies along the way. I think I'll just stay. And I said this on Sunday, we were looking at Revelation, looking at heaven as we were finishing the book. But I truly believe this, that if, if we had a thousand Christians in a room and everybody was being honest, and I said, how many of you would like the rapture to be tomorrow? I think less than half of the room would raise their hand. I think most people would say, well, I got other things I want to do here. I got a vacation set up. I got grandkids coming. And I'm not saying these things are bad, but here's the reality. When we get to heaven, no one's going to wish they had stayed here one day longer. Amen. We don't have a heavenly perspective when we should. And here we have these people who understand God's called us to go. And I know that while I'm here, it's comfortable, but I don't want to be comfortable. And nowhere in the Bible does it say we're to be comfortable as Christians. That's why he gives us a comforter because we're not supposed to be comfortable. Amen. Yeah. 
So the Lord stirs up his people spiritually to go back home to Jerusalem. He prompts them, and here he notes the almost 50,000 that responded in obedient faith. Look at verse 2. It says, those who came were Zerubbabel and Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpah, here's what, Pastor Humility Pill, Bigvay, Rehum, and Benai, the number of men of the people of Israel. Now, notice those names, the two people that God is going to use when they go back into the land. And by the way, there's two separate portions, verse chapter one to six, and then you have a break of 60 years, and then you have the rest of it taking place. Chapter one to six, the one who's leading is a man by the name of Zerubbabel, and the high priest, his name is Jeshua, which is Yahshua, which is Joshua, which is Jesus, right? So he's the high priest in captivity. Zerubbabel is going to be the leader. The next wave that comes, it's Ezra. That's where the book of Ezra comes from. He'll be the one coming back with them. So the first six chapters, they're getting settled back in the land, and they got to rebuild this mess. They come into rubble, debris, open way for enemies to come in, and they're going to step out in faith and trust the Lord. The Nehemiah here is not the same Nehemiah that's going to rebuild the walls about 90 years in the future. The Mordecai here is not the Mordecai who's Esther's cousin. This is the time of Esther. So Ezra and Nehemiah speak of what happens to those who go back to Jerusalem. Esther talks about those who stay in Babylon, which becomes Persia, and she becomes queen. So she's going to be the queen in the place where the people remain, where the Jews we know have a problem, right? They want to kill the Jews. Mordecai and others want to kill the Jews. So Ezra is what's going to take place during the exact same time as um, Ezra and Nehemiah is the exact same time as Esther. Esther's the people that stay in Persia. Ezra and Nehemiah are the ones that go back to Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to go through all the names, although I could. Um, there are some names in here, most of the names you wouldn't recognize anyway, but let me just break them down because I want to get to chapter, chapter three. So chapter, for verse three to verse 20, he names families. And there's apparently names of families, some members of which returned with Zerubbabel in 536 BC and others that would come back later with Ezra and Ezra 8, 10 and Nehemiah 10. It's a total of 15,604 people. Again, there's lots of names here. We won't read them all. Um, so all of you, if you really love Jesus, you'll read every name before you, get, you go to bed tonight. <laughs> Out loud and send me a, a FaceTime. No, I'm not kidding. I'm just kidding. But I do love to read their names because a lot of them you'll see people like Kurjath Aram and some of these people, you'll, Nebo and all these names you'll see in, the, in, in these texts. And you'll recognize their names. Now, keep in mind, these are all contemporaries of prophets at, in those days. Haggai is a prophet at that time. There's other prophets that are going to be prophesying. Uh, Zechariah is during this time. Uh, Esther, as I mentioned, is during this time. So even, and that's the thing about it. You see the historical books, and then you see the prophetic books. There's only three more historical books in the Old Testament. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And after that, they're all prophetic books that are talking about that same, roughly that same time period and a little bit beyond. Then we're going to see in, in chapter 21 to 35, they're listed by the towns they're going back to. So not everybody went to Jerusalem. Some people went back to the old city where their family lived 70 years ago. So some of you, you know, where did your grandparents live or your great grandparents live? And are you going to go back to that city knowing there's nothing there and rebuild it from scratch? So some of them went out to these outlying towns that could be 50, 60, 80 miles away from Jerusalem. And there they would rebuild their city because they were called 
by God. And you can see the, t- the, the different towns that they were sent to in verses 21 to 35. There's 8,540 people listed there. And the next list is not by family again, but it's by the towns that they're headed to. The men of Anatoth, 128. Anatoth was Jeremiah's hometown. And Jeremiah, of course, is a contemporary of this time. And way back in the siege of Jerusalem, Jeremiah received an interesting set of instructions from God. He said, even though Jeremiah knew the Babylonians were going to win, God gave Jeremiah a command to purchase property in Anathoth. So, hey, you're going to get wiped out by the Babylonians. I still want you to go buy property there. And he went and bought the property. You know what that is? It's an act of faith that God's coming back. Amen? And I think as believers, we need to be mindful and live every day in light of the fact that the Lord is coming back. Amen? And his word tells us, and we need to live like it every single day. He did what God commanded. He bought his uncle's property. And even though it sounds like a worthless investment to you and I, again, uh, he was faithful to it and God blessed it. Sometimes God is going to call you to do things that other people are going to think you're crazy for doing it. Guys, we don't listen to men. We obey God. Amen? And the word, and always check it against the word of God. There is wisdom in the counsel of many. Get godly counsel. But often the things that we choose to do, the world will look at as if we're crazy. God was reminding people that destruction wasn't the end of it when he told Jeremiah to buy the land. And guess what? 70 years later, it came true. By the way, we pray in our time and God answers in his time. Amen? Amen. Verses 36 to 58, he's going to talk about all the temple workers. That includes priests and Levites and various classes of servants who worked in the temple. Now keep in mind, for 70 years, there's been no temple. So they were people that worked in the temple, and now they're descendants of people that worked in the temple who've never worked in the temple. So they have no doubt heard from their parents, or you know, this is what you're supposed to do if we ever get back to a temple, but this was your calling. Now, all the priests were Levites, but not all the Levites were priests. So you had priests, and what does a priest do? A priest intercedes with man, on behalf of God, and with God on behalf of man. And the Bible tells us that we are all a part of a royal priesthood as born-again believers. So we are called to intercede with God on behalf of people. We pray for people. Amen? So we go to God and intercede on their behalf. And then we go to people and speak on God's behalf, right? In a sense, we, we call them to salvation. We call them to repentance. So included in this group, in verse 36 to 39, we see the priests. In verse 40 to 42, we see the Levites. In verse 43 to 58, we see all the people that are going to work in the temple. So 4,289 priests, 341 Levites, and 392 temple servants return. Then you get to verse 43. Notice it says it's in the midst of that. It says, Nephium, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Heshvaphah, the sons of Tabith, the Nephium, these were given names to temple slaves. And some fill the descendants of the Gibeonites and the Canaanites who had deceived Joshua and made a treaty with him. It's interesting to me that servants survived. Rather than be wiped out by Joshua, these are people that chose to serve the God of Israel. They became servants for the servanthood of God. And then finally, verses 59 to 63, we're going to see priests who could not prove that their genealogy made them priests. And yet they were still called by God to return, and they still came back. Uh, And then finally, in verses 64 to 70, he gives us a little summary. Let me read through that with you. Uh, And again, we can go through all the genealogies. I'm a big genealogy guy. They're all in the Bible for a reason. 
Uh, we can take the time to take them apart, and I love to do that. By the way, when we get to Matthew, we absolutely will do that in chapter 1, because the genealogy of Matthew points us all to Jesus. Amen? Now, verse 64, it says this, the whole assembly together was 42,360. Does God keep track down to the number? Can I get an amen to that? He knows, that, he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the tears you've cried in your lifetime. That's our God. I think too often we forget that our God's a God of order and he cares about the details. Because guys, if we would remember that, I think we would pray more. If we would remember that, we wouldn't be fearful as much. We wouldn't be worried as much. Our God knows. Did God know that on September 17, 2021, he was going to take my son to heaven? What's the answer? God knows. And you know what the enemy does? He beats me up with it every day because I'm his dad. And dads are supposed to be there for their sons when they're struggling. And I wasn't there in that moment. Now, see, the enemy beats you up with that. See, but when we recognize that God is a God of detail, like he's a God of order, does God know you're going to lose the job when you lost it? Do you know you might be diagnosed with cancer when you got... Does he know all the details of your life? He does, and he loves you, and we need to learn to trust him and have faith in him, even if we don't understand. Amen? Because he's far wiser than us, and he knows what is best. Well, he numbered the people down to the person. God, God's not surprised. N nobody stayed back and had God think they went. Amen? Well, I'll just, I'll just lay low. Maybe God will think I went. No, God knows you didn't go. God knows you were not being faithful. God knows you wanted to hang out with all the idolaters instead. Then it says in verse 65, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 men and women singers. So as they're marching through, they got the total number is 49,667. And as they're marching through the wilderness, that's a good place to have 200 singers, don't you think? You can't, you can't put AirPods on, right? You got some people singing praise songs on the way. It's a good thing. Then notice it breaks down. The horses were 736. That's not a lot of horses for 50,000 people. It's good to have 700 horses, but that's not a lot of horses. They're going, they're going to have to do this in faith. Uh, their donkeys were 6,720. Who would like to drag 7,000 donkeys across 900 miles of desert. My grandmother had a donkey when I was a kid. We couldn't get that donkey to go five feet, let alone 900 miles. Then it says here, their camels were 435, their donkeys 6,000. Yeah, some of the heads of the fathers of the houses, when they came into the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, they offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave the treasury for the work, 60. 1,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. So the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the gatekeepers and the Nephinim dwelt in their cities, in all of their cities. So when they get there, immediately those who have a calling start to be faithful to what they're called to do. We're going to see that there's construction workers. We're going to see that other people have different callings, and they're all going to take their calling and use their gift. That's how the body of Christ functions. Everybody in this room tonight has a gift. And you have gifts I may not have. I may have gifts you don't have. God will may use me to minister to you, and God will use you to minister to me. We have in this room prayer warriors who love to pray. Praise God for prayer warriors. Amen? People don't even know they're praying, and they're praying faithfully, and praise God for that. We have people who come to the church on Sunday mornings especially three hours early to set everything up and do everything. We have people that work to make sure that this goes out on live stream, and it can be heard on the radio later. God has, all have gifts, and a lot of times we just want to sit on the sideline. 
And, and a calling doesn't have to be something in front of everyone, but just be faithful to do what God has called you to do. So these people came, many of them settled in their own villages. A majority of them went to Jerusalem. They know they've got their work cut out for them. They're going to walk in and no doubt when they see it. Now keep in mind, we're going to see in a few verses that some of the people going back had been there. Now it's been 70 years. Some though didn't come until about 50, the temple was destroyed 50 something years before. But the first people were drug out 70 years before, and some at the very end, there was three phases they were drug off into Babylon. So if you were 15 when you left, and you left in the last wave, you come back in your 70. But you would remember the temple from when you were 15. And you would remember Jerusalem and the walls around it. And now you come back and all you see is rubble. It's all been burnt to the ground. The Temple of Solomon, again, five to eight billion dollars in today's money, just a beautiful, and it's gone. And so as you come back, the, the ones who had never been there didn't know what to expect, and they were just blessed that they could worship God out loud. They were just blessed that they get to be a part of what God's doing. But those who had been there before, when they came back, they were grieved. Imagine if we were drug away for 70 years to a foreign country or for 50 years to a foreign country, and we left at 20, and you came back, and Thousand Oaks was leveled to the ground. There was nothing here but rubble. It's even more so because it was the house of God. It was a place where they worshiped the Lord. And so we're going to see that as they come back, that God's got a calling on their life. And again, when God calls us to do something, it isn't easy. You've heard me say it, when it's doing what is easy is rarely right, and doing what is right is rarely easy. Amen. And when God's got a calling on your life, it's a get to, not a have to, even if it's difficult. Because when you're called by the Lord, you want to do it with your whole heart. So point number, Ezra 3 here. So Ezra 2, we saw who responded to it. And now we're going to see, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Beginning of point number one, making the worship of the true and living God the priority above all else. So what it says in verse one. And when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man at Jerusalem. So they come into Judah. Now remember, if you were here, Judah is only the southern two uh, tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And then the 10 northern tribes were Israel. So down that southern tribe, the people had come and they'd settled in their outskirts cities. But then on the first day of the seventh month, they all gathered together as one in Jerusalem. Now the seventh month to the children of Israel, you could argue was the most holy month of the year for them. Because there were three feasts that took place during that time. Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles. And so for them, this was a time where people would travel a great distance to come and to remember Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So just under 50,000 people have left Babylon. They've traveled all these miles. It's taken months to get there, knowing all they would find is ruins. Not only the temple, but the walls, the city. The sh there's no shops. There's no homes. There's nothing. They rebuild the entire city. They're going to have to rebuild the entire city and its infrastructure. And some month later, in the midst of all this great undertaking, something very encouraging took place. The children of Israel dropped what they were doing to gather together as one to celebrate the Lord. So you've got this task at hand. You've traveled 900 miles. You're rebuilding everything. And you, this day of the seventh month comes and you all gather together. Now, I'm blown away because nobody has had any of these feasts for 70 years. I'm blown away 
that they've been living amongst idols and there've been no sacrifices for 70 years. And now they're coming home and they still remember the calendar. And they still remember what God has called them to do. And praise God that even when they were in captivity, there were those that were continuing to remember the feasts of God. Remember that all the feasts were them celebrating when God had showed up in a mighty and a powerful way. What's Passover? What's that reminder of? The cross. cross. But what, what, at this point, what took place? Blood on the doorpost. But it was a deliverance out of Egyptian bondage after 430 years in bondage. Do you think celebrating Passover now that they've been delivered out of bondage might be significant to them? They looked back and said, look, God delivered us out of, our ancestors out of bondage after 430 years. And how did they do it? With the blood of the lamb and the shape of a cross and the angel of death would pass over. And no doubt that story is being told to this generation, but at the same time, they're surrounded by idols. They're surrounded by immorality. They're surrounded by paganism. And in the middle of that, they remain faithful. Gives hope to all of us living in California. Amen? So some months later, here they are, and again, they're also going to celebrate the Day of Atonement, which we call Yom Kippur, the Feast of Trumpets, which is Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a week-long remembrance of their 40 years in the wilderness. And keep in mind, they had spent 70 years in captivity. They've traveled this great distance. They have a great task in front of them, but they stop everything to worship the Lord. That's a great exhortation for all of us. Amen? Even though they had no limited, they had limited resources, little to no security, they still dropped everything, many traveling great distance from their villages they had tried to start settling in, all in the midst of rebuilding ruins, they gathered together as one in Jerusalem to celebrate the holiest of Jewish holidays. And again, holidays they had, most of them had never celebrated before. It'd be like returning the United States after being in a country that forbid it and celebrating Resurrection Sunday, even though you'd never celebrated it in your life and nobody had done it in 70 years. This was an encouraging sign of obedience among the returned exiles. In time of small resources and great work to be done, they took the time and money to observe and and come together in Jerusalem for these major feasts. As believers, we must never take gathering together as God's people for granted. Amen? Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir. You're here on Thursday night. But the point is that there's so much where if you, if you make church optional, it'll become optional. And I'm not talking about this church. I'm just talking about worship in general. Amen? Being in fellowship. If you make it optional for your kids, they'll stop coming. By the way, you're the parent. There's no voting. Do you make them go to math? Make them come to church. Can I get an amen to that? Well, they don't like coming. Get over it. God's word doesn't return void. They don't like math either. You make them go to that. So guys, we want to make sure. So here they come. They've traveled. You can say, dude, we just traveled 900 miles. I'm still trying to fix my tent on my deserted piece of property that I got to build a house on. And you want me to do what? Travel 60 miles to Jerusalem? Dude, I'm done. But we don't see that happening. They all come. This is why they're the 50,000 that left Babylon and traveled 900 miles because God had his hand on these people. Amen? Guys, when we're serving the Lord, it's a get to, not a have to. There's no place I would, in those days, would you rather stay with a bunch of idol worshiping pagan, that nonsense, or be with, the, with Almighty God, in the presence of Almighty God and praise the Lord for them? We don't have the names of the people that stayed back. We have the names of those who stepped out in faith. Amen? So they dropped everything. They gathered together as one and they celebrated. 
And this is an, a, a great encouraging sign of where their hearts were. It would have been so easy to be mad at God after traveling this great distance. Look, it says in verse 2, Then Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. It says, Though fear had come upon them, verse 3, because of the people of these countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening burnt offerings. So Jeshua, or Yeshua, Yeshua, uh, and Zerubbabel, these were the two main leaders of the rebuilding project, and they had a huge task in front of them. They had city walls, temple to be built, homes, etc. And again, as I mentioned in the beginning, the outline in the beginning, much like Hezekiah, before they built one wall, before they worried about their security one bit, the first thing they did was rebuild the altar. The altar was the place of sacrifice. The altar was the place of remembrance of what God had done for them and what God was going to do. In the old covenant, the altar represents in the new covenant, the cross. Amen? Because the altar was the place where the blood was shed for the remission of sins. And again, the blood of bulls and goats cannot save us, but it was pointing to the one who would. And so that's why we don't have altars anymore, because when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. But I love this picture that as soon as they get there, it's almost like they said, well, we're going to build an altar and we're going to make sacrifices because God comes before even our own security. God comes before whether we're going to eat tomorrow or not. God comes before our own home and our own comfort. God is first. He's the priority. Guys, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Guys, when we make God the priority of our life, he'll take care of everything else. Amen? And too often we, we make God the, you know, the 15th thing on our list. Well, we'll give him an hour and a half on Sunday, unless my favorite football team or NASCAR is on or the waves are big. Then I'll, then I'll, I'll make it next week, right? The priority and the passion of our lives needs to be the Lord. And before they did anything else, this was the first thing they did. It's interesting that Joshua is the grandson of Sariah, the high priest who was put to death by King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar killed his grandfather when he was brought back from Babylon. And I love that this guy went back anyway. I love that he wasn't mad at God. He wasn't grieved by God. He didn't say, why God? Here was a man whose own grandfather was martyred for his faith. And here's his grandson. He's now the first high priest in all of captivity. So they first build the altar to reestablish worship and sacrifices to the true and living God. Out of rubble of the destroyed temple and its courts, an altar now stood ready to receive sacrifices, both on behalf of the people as a whole and individuals. Now, what's interesting is they had to find the altar because they weren't going to put it anywhere else. So what they did is they had to go into the rubble and figure out in the rubble of Solomon's temple where the altar was, uncover it, and then build a new altar on top of the one that had been burnt down or had been destroyed. And so here they are, and the first thing they're doing is digging through the rubble to find the place where they can worship God. A lot of us, if our houses were rubble, we'd be shaking our fists at God. They're seeking to worship God. Amen? He's the priority. He's the passion. We're not going to say why. Who else has the words of eternal life? Where else are we going to go? And by the way, they couldn't worship when they were in Babylon, and now they can. Whenever I go to countries where worship is not as easy, where they can 
catch a lot of grief for it. I find that they have a greater appreciation for worship than we do here. Why? Because we're just so used to it. Because we know it'll cost us nothing to worship in a sense. It may cost you your job if you step up for the Lord out loud at work. It may cost you friendship with some neighbors if you stand for the Lord. So here we have these two men, and they're the spiritual leaders, Zerubbabel, and, it, he's, and then it's going to be Ezra later. He's the leader. And then Joshua, he is the first high priest. And the first thing they want to do is build the altar. What a great example for all of us to follow. Before we focus on our own security, our own comfort, our own careers, our relationships, our finances, our relationship with the Lord, and our intimate fellowship with Him must come first. Is Jesus Christ the most important thing in your life? If he's not, you need to burn down whatever, whatever those idols are that you're putting in front of him. Amen? He's the priority. He's the passion. I've told you one of my life's verses, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It means my life is Christ. Our life should be Christ. It doesn't mean he's first on the list. He's first, he's 10th, he's 100th, he's every number in between. He is the list. Amen? We seek him first above all else. And you know what? We live, live with him and for him. And when we die, it only gets better. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Your walk with the Lord is not a priority, but the priority. Amen? So it's not one of many priorities. It's the priority. How many of us are going to get to heaven and go, man, I wish I had worked more and got another promotion? How many is going to get to heaven and go, man, I wish I'd have caught another wave, or I wish I'd you know, bought that car I always wanted? None of that stuff will matter in heaven. When we get to heaven, the only thing that will matter is what have we done for God's Son. The only thing we're taking to heaven with us is people. people. The people of Judah went into captivity because of their sin and disobedience. Now they return with a spirit of genuine repentance in their zealous determination to renew the blood sacrifices on the altar even before the temple is built. Man, I love this. They were thrown out. They were taken into captivity because they had become pagan idolaters and stopped worshiping God. And 70 years later when they come back, that's all they care about is worshiping God. You know what? God will allow us to go through difficulty that we might get our eyes back where they belong. Amen? Often when I pray for people, you know, as a pastor, I get prayer requests every day and I love them. And I've got a bunch of prayer requests. I pray for you guys every day. I'm committed to that. And I get prayer requests all the time. Here's what a lot of them are. Pray for so-and-so in my family that's wandered away from the Lord. You know, a prodigal son or daughter. Here's my prayer for all of them, including my own kids when they were struggling. Lord, do whatever it takes to get them to come home. They got to go to prison. Let them go to prison. If they have to go through something radical, let them go through something radical. Whatever it's going to take to get their eyes back on Jesus. Well, guess what had to happen to the people living in Judea and Judah and again in Israel? What had to happen? They had to be in bondage for 70 years. They had to find out this is what life is like without the Lord. Oh yeah, we're caught up in pagan idolatry here. We'll just give you some guys that all they do is have pagan idolatry. Let me go live amongst the thing that you've wanted all this time. Let's see how that works out. When they come back now, they are so hungry to worship the Lord, and He is the priority and the passion of their life. And again, doing it even before the temple was built. They're like, look, we can start making sacrifices on the altar. We can build a temple later. We can put the walls up around it later, but we want to make sacrifices now. They built the altar first because it was something they could do relatively quickly and easy, and we began a great work by doing first what we can. Sometimes, I think as believers, we have this big vision for something and 
We don't think we've arrived until we get there. And too often, what we need to do is just be faithful right where we are. Amen? If you've been a part of this church since we started, we've gone through multiple buildings, right? We were in the community center, and we blew out of it, and then we're in the, we found a great building we're in, and we lost that during COVID, and then we came here thinking it was going to be temporary, and then we're going to build a gym that hasn't happened yet, so we're meeting in a tent, and we could, go, we could all be worried about all this other stuff. Here's what we want to do. Preach the word and love the people. That's what we want to do. And we want to, make every, we want to love everybody who comes through the doors. We want to minister every single heart that is here. We want God to be glorified, and if God wants to put us into a place that, that accommodates us better, he will. But in the meantime, it's not about the building. It's about Jesus. Amen? And we want to be faithful where we are and not wait until we get somewhere else to start being used by God. They're like, look, yeah, we can't build a temple today. It's going to take a while. We don't even have all the products, the, the stuff we need to build it. You know what we can do? We can build an altar today. And we can start making sacrifices today. And we can start worshiping the Lord today. And then in God's timing, the rest of it will come. But that part we can do and we can do it right now. They built it first because they understood its spiritual significance. The altar was where sin was dealt with, where the common man met with God. The temple, only the priest could enter, but the altar was the place where, again, a spiritual connection with the Lord, showing that men understood their need for atonement for sin and performed acts of dedication to God. They built the, uh, the uh, altar first because it was also an act of obedience. They needed to resume burnt offerings for the atonement of sin. 70 years of no offerings. Now, most of you know that some of you were there when we met in the synagogue in Calabasas for a while. And I got to be really good friends with the rabbi. Pray for rabbi. Pray, pray for Rabbi Ron. And so I would meet with him and I would ask him that question. So wait a minute, you're Jewish. Uh, when was the last sacrifice? Oh, we don't make that. You don't make that. Okay, so how, are you, how is your sin atoned for? Well, uh, uh, what happens to you when you die? Uh, we just think we go in the ground. Why are you a rabbi then? Amen? But the point I'm making is that the sacrificial, there's nobody sacrificing animals right now. There's no temple right now. Amen? It's going to be rebuilt during the Great Tribulation, but it's, there's no temple right now. I think they could build an altar, but they haven't. You know, and you know why? Because that altar is no good anymore because Jesus fulfilled it on the cross of Calvary, and he is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Amen? So we don't need, praise God, we're not dragging lambs in here on Sundays. I wouldn't want to do that. The Lord told me to, I would, but I don't want to do that. So the altar of the new covenant is the cross, where sin was dealt with once or for all. It is finished. You can't have a temple without an altar, without a place of sacrifice for sin. We cannot be the temple of the Holy Spirit and have a relationship with the Lord apart from the cross. See, the temple of the old covenant is now us. The Bible says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen. But the temple is not a temple without an altar in the old covenant. And this temple is not a temple without the cross of Calvary, without us being born again and being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not the temple of the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit doesn't live here. Amen? So as believers, Spirit was with you. You gave your life to Jesus. The Holy Spirit came to live inside of you. So there cannot be a temple without an altar but there can be an altar without a temple, at least in the Old Covenant. And God meets men at the place of sacrifice, even though there be no house in his name. Notice verse 3 there. It says, so they do all this, but though fear came upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its basis and they offered burnt offerings unto the Lord both morning and evening. Now, the countries that were around them 
they of course knew that when Israel was there, when, when Judah was there, that they were a force to be reckoned with because their God was for them. When they would go into battles honoring the Lord, they won every time. And so when they see that the altar's being rebuilt, it's a sign to everyone around them, we're building an altar and the temple's coming next. And we're going to worship the true and living God. And we're going to rebuild the Jerusalem. We're going to rebuild the temple. We're going to rebuild it all. So the countries around them didn't like that. And they started to have fear. But even in the midst of their fear, they built the altar anyway. And as believers, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. Amen? Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear whom was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We don't have to fear people that the worst thing they can do to us is the best thing that could happen to us. You can't threaten me with heaven. Amen? They shoot us in that way. Absent the body, present with the Lord, heaven is better. So instead of fearing those who can harm the body, we should fear the one who can cast us into hell for all eternity. Fear had come upon them. The people of the neighboring countries didn't want them building a temple or making sacrifices. But God's word again reminds them that we're not to fear man. Even though they were afraid what the neighboring people would think about their sacrifices, they were more afraid of displeasing God. Guys, what do you fear more? Do you fear more being unpopular with men or displeasing God? I think the number one problem in the church today, there's two, biblical illiteracy, biblical illiteracy, and number two, we don't fear God enough. Amen? I forget the guy's name right now, but he was a TBN guy, and he got busted and went to prison, and then he was interviewed by a, believe, a Christian, and supposedly he's gotten, got right with the Lord, and I pray that he has. And he said to him, how in the world could you keep doing all that when you say that you love God? He said, I never stopped loving God. That wasn't the problem. I didn't fear God. So he was fleecing people and getting to send their, you know, their tithes in and their seed offerings. By the way, seed offerings, nowhere in the Bible. Seed in the Bible is the word of God. It's never money. Just stop it, right? This is what happens. You take a text out of context, so you left a con, amen? And so this guy was fleecing people. He goes to jail and he realizes, I just didn't fear God. Guys, we'll only shake our fists at God if we don't fear Him. We'll only take the Word of God to feed ourselves physically and, and to please our flesh if we don't fear God. And so thankfully, they feared God enough. They feared more displeasing God than being you know, afraid of the people and what they could do to them. We must not allow the fear of men to keep us from walking in faithful obedience to the Lord. We must put faith over fear always. When they built the altar to the Lord on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem... They probably destroyed maybe a crude altar that was already there, and the people that surrounded them got very nervous, and they were wanting to come against them, and there was some fear that came along. The Bible doesn't say, don't ever be afraid, but the Bible tells us that when you're afraid, trust in the Lord. Amen? Amen? Amen. We're going to have moments when we're fearful. Fear can be a good thing, by the way. If a lion came in the room right now, I hope you're all afraid and we all run out the door. Can I get an amen to that? If you're not afraid and you just sit here, you're lying, chow. Can I get an amen to that? But the point is that fear can be a good thing at times, but we're not to walk in fear, we're to walk in faith. And when we are fearful, we need to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm afraid of this. I don't know what to do. And you know what? Perfect love, what? Casts out what? Casts out all fear. So they set the altar on its bases. This means that they found the old foundation of the previous altar and they built the new one in the exact place where the old one was. So this place date back to King David's altar 
on the threshing floor of Aruna back way back when. He, remember he had made a threshing floor and he said, I'm going to build an altar right here. That's the same place where the altar was all these hundreds of years later. The centrality of the altar set upon the ancient foundations was essential to them as it is for us. The altar was to them what the cross is to Christians in the new covenant. The cross and the redeeming work of our Savior upon the cross must never be taken for granted. Why do we, do, why do we have the Lord's Supper? Many reasons, but do this in remembrance of, of Jesus and what he did on the cross of Calvary. His body broken, his blood that was shed, and we never want to lose sight of the cross of Calvary. One of the things I love to ask people, you know, I'm really shy when I'm out and about. Yeah, thou shalt not bear false witness. But here's the thing. I love meeting new people. I really do. I love meeting new people. I have friends of people I haven't met yet. And whenever someone's wearing a cross, I love to ask them, so what does that mean to you? I see you got a cross around your neck. I love that. What does it mean to you? And some people say, well, it means it matches my earrings. And it's a nice piece of jewelry. I've had that, I've had that answer. A lot of times I've had the answer, it means everything to me. Because my Savior died on the cross for me. And without him, I would be, you know, I spent eternity separated from God. And you know what? Praise God. I, so I love those. So guys, what does the cross mean to you? You know, I, if you're here on Thursday night, it's, it means more to you than a piece of jewelry. But guys, we must never lose sight of it. And we must, must never take it lightly or take it for granted. Again, the cross and redeeming work of our Savior upon it must never be taken for granted. Without the cross and our Savior's resurrection, we're all doomed. Amen? Verse 4. Notice what he says here. Though they had come upon them, uh, verse 4, I was looking at verse 3. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it was written and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by the ordinance for each day. You know what this means? Somebody's reading the Bible. Amen? Now, they didn't have the completed Bible, but they had the Septuagint, right? They had the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Might even had Joshua by now. But they've got those books of the Bible, and somebody was reading it to know that there's a Feast of Tabernacles and to know when it takes place and to be faithful to obey it. So even though they've been caught up in idolatry, there's not one temple service in 70 years. There's no worship taking place necessarily. Might have been people worshiping God, but there's no sacrifices being made. 70 years later, they come back and they know what the Word of God says and they're being faithful to it. Praise God for these guys. Amen. Praise God for somebody in the midst of it standing for the Lord when nobody else will. So one of the major feasts, again, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, each feast was a remembrance of God's faithfulness and deliverance. And the Feast of Tabernacles, this great and joyful feast, celebrated God's faithfulness to Israel during their wilderness journey from Egypt to the land of promise. Now, for in, in uh, Jerusalem and in other days, what they would do is they would all get out of their houses and they would all go out into the wilderness and they would camp out in tents for a week. And they would do that to remember how God provided for them as they wandered through the wilderness. Now, these guys are already living in tents. They haven't built any houses yet. So for them, they just moved all their tents together, I guess. And they were remembering God's deliverance out of bondage. And it's good for us to remember that God delivered us. Amen? We must never lose sight of that. Now, remember that God delivered them, and then they all died in the wilderness. Why? What did they disobey about? Going into the land of promise. Do you know it's an 11-day journey from Sinai to the land of promise? 
And they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness till that entire generation dropped dead. Why? Because they got to the land of promise. They sent 12 spies in. Two came back, Joshua and Caleb, and said, dude, we'll wipe them out. It's land flowing milk and honey. The other 10 were scared out to death. And they listened to men instead of listening to God. And they all died in the wilderness. And you know what? I truly believe this, that Sinai, or the Red Sea is a picture of water baptism. I believe that Jordan River is a picture of a spirit-filled life. And what happens is we've got a lot of Christians who are out of Egypt, the world, have crossed over and surrendered their life to the Lord to a certain degree, but they never enter into God's highest, and they spend their life wandering around between Sinai, and they never enter into the land of promise. And as believers, we should not be satisfied with saved souls and wasted lives. Amen. We shouldn't be satisfied to wander in the wilderness when God has so much more he wants to do in us and through us. What did he do in the wilderness? He led them by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. They woke up every morning. The first thing they did was look up and wherever the pillar went, they got up and moved. You know, they had a tabernacle and, it was, and they, they were camped in the shape of a cross. Numbers three, read it. So as they marched, they were going through in the shape of a cross and the tabernacle was there and God's presence was there. God dropped manna from the sky to feed them. You know, in the Bible, it tells us that their clothes never wore out. You put every clothing business out of business. You walk through the wilderness for 40 years and your clothes are still Rico Suave good. That's, a, that's sweet. God protected them from their enemies. God righteously judged them. The entire generation that refused to enter into the land of the giants out of fear died in the wilderness and missed out on God's highest. During the feast, the families of Israel were commanded to camp out in temporary shelters, and just be reminded of how God provided for their ancestors when they traveled from Sinai into the land of promise, verses 5 and 6. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering, and those for new moons, and those for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those for everyone willingly to offer a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. So they remembered that the burnt offerings need to take place morning and evening. They had sin offerings. And then on the first of every month, they had another offering. That's what we're talking about with new moons. So all these offerings that had to take place, and right off the bat, they're faithfully being obedient to make all these sacrifices. Sacrifices that had not been made in 70 years. They were being obedient to the Lord, and each time they made a sacrifice, without the shedding of blood, there can be no covering for sin. Why did they have to bring animals? Because, you know, Passover was really gnarly because they had to bring a lamb into their house. And it needed to be a firstborn lamb without any blemish. And then they had to keep it there for four days to make sure it wasn't sick. And at the end of four days, they then had to take it out and slit its throat. Can you imagine having a little baby lamb in your house for four days? And you got to take it out and you got to slit its throat and take the blood and put it in a basin and then put it on the top of your house and both sides and the doorpost a picture of the cross because they needed to recognize that our salvation costs something. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The salvation is a free gift, but it costs our Savior everything. Can I get an amen to that? And so this shedding of blood was a reminder. You know, when you read through Leviticus, it's the most bloody book ever written in human history. It's filled with blood. Now, why? Because we need to recognize without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. You can't be good enough to get into heaven. If good works could save you, Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross. Amen? You, you, can't, you can't do enough good works. You can't be religious enough. You can't. It, no. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. When you add to the cross, you're making Jesus less. Now, Notice it says they began with the burnt offerings. Now, this describes after 70 years in Babylon, captivity surrounded by false 
idols. Let me just tell you quickly what was in uh, the land where they lived for 70 years. Over 50 pagan temples, huge pagan temples, 50 of them. 180 open-air shrines to Ishtar, 300 for Ijiji, a god, 1,200 for Anuka, another god. Now, when I would go to, I used to go to India every year. I did that for seven years in a row. And I would teach up to 1,000 pastors how to study and teach the Bible. And most of them had come out of either Hinduism or Islam. So they're newer believers, and they're going to go plant churches. And by the way, they would go into villages and the first thing they would do, they go two by two, they would dig graves for themselves. And they would tell the people in the town, if you want to kill me, go right ahead. You can bury me right out there, but I'm not leaving and I'm going to preach Jesus forever. And, and, and then I would go to minister to them and go, really? I remember one of them saying to me, well, you know what it's like to be persecuted and beaten for your faith. You know, it's, it's really hard when they get you on the ground and beat the daylight. So they did that to me the other day. I was thankful I didn't have my glasses on because usually they like to break your glasses. But you know what that's like. You're a pastor. I'm like, yeah, yeah no. I don't. But I was there one time during Diwali, two times actually. Diwali is the high Hindu holiday. They have 30 million gods. They would always say to me, you only have one God. We have 30 million. I got, I got one living God. You got 30 million dead idols. We can talk about that anytime you want. But here's the reality is that during Diwali, I'm not kidding, about every five feet, there's an altar. As you're walking on altar, 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 altar. We were going through one town. It was my first time there. It just blew me away. I was with my uh, interpreter, and it was about an eight-story tall monkey god. And all these people were dressed in red, and they were marching around this monkey over and over, chanting. And I'm like, Am I, did I just fall into, yeah, Ten Commandments or something? What in the world? And I'm like, what are they doing? He goes, oh, that's part of Diwali. And they would tell you, as Christians, don't even go out during Diwali. So I went out every night and tried to witness people. But when you go out, you know, because again, you can't threaten us with heaven. And they had tables of their little gods. You could buy gods and the color you want that will match your drapes so you could take it home. And so they had all these gods. But the sad part was, it was so heartbreaking to walk amongst these people with all these gods and all these gods don't exist. And all these gods are dead. So heartbreaking. I remember, I've told you this many times. It's still, I, this guy comes to my mind once a week. He was on his knees in front of a statue of an elephant, and he was crying out at the top of his lungs with tears running down his face. And I didn't have an interpreter with me, and I could not talk to him. I wanted to let him know, somebody made that marble elephant. There's a creator who loves you. It's tragic. And so for 70 years, they were surrounded by Diwali. There was altars everywhere, false gods everywhere. And it's so easy just to become like the world around you. But praise God for those who didn't do it. You know, it's been said that behind every idol, there's at least one demon. You know, and outwardly, the, you know, the, these shrines were very beautiful, kind of like the shrines of Babylon. Now, I walked through it. You can chastise me later. The biggest Hindu shrine in the world is in India. I was there on Diwali. All these people were marching through it. I was sitting there going, huh. I'm not afraid of it. I'm kind of curious what's in there. So I went in and I walked through it. And all these people, all it has is a bunch of statues and idols and all these stations. It's almost like Catholic. They stop at each of these stations. They rub a little thing on their forehead. I wasn't worried about it because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I wouldn't camp out there, but I just was curious. So I walked through it. But this big, beautiful shrine, and they're all over. And they're dead as doornails. And there's nothing there. 
And what would happen every night, I would teach all day for about 12 hours. At the end of the day, I would go to one of these pastor's villages. So we'd get in a Jeep and we'd drive through, the, you know, out through this, you know, the woods and something. We'd get out to this village and there's this little building that's not very spectacular, doesn't look like much. And you walk in and there's 50 people sitting on the floor. They've been there eight hours waiting for you. And they're worshiping the Lord at the top of their lungs. And let me just tell you, that little shack beats the daylights out of every one of those shrines that anybody ever wants to put up. Can I get an amen to that? These shrines spent money. So here that is. It was filled with those kind of shrines everywhere. And they come back and now they got the altar of God. And that altar of God beats the daylights out of every shrine to every other false God ever built. Amen? You know what it is? We want to be where the Lord is, where his presence is. And the freedom of worship was something new to these believers. They had not had it. Willingly offered free will offerings to the Lord. Hadn't been able to do it for 70 years. Coming back with a heart of worship. Amen? They came back with a heart to worship the Lord, to open, openly and unashamedly worship the true and living God. Notice again that it said in verse 6, on the first day of the seventh month, they knew, again, that's the Feast of Trumpets, which led to the Feast of Tabernacles, and a time of rejoicing and remembering God's deliverance from Egyptian bondage as they celebrated their own deliverance from bondage out of Babylon. And they offered burnt offerings to the Lord. And again, although the foundation, the te- so the temple, they haven't even put the foundation for the temple down, but they're worshiping the Lord already. And it goes to show you that what really matters is intimate fellowship with the Lord is more important than the building itself. Amen? And this altar was the place they needed to make sacrifice. Again, for us, we have the cross. We don't need the altars anymore. And we can have intimate fellowship with the Lord anywhere and any time. Last verse of point number one, making the worship of the true and living God the priority above all else. Verse seven, they also gave money to masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. When Cyrus sent them out, we also know this later from Ezra chapter six, he actually sent them with money to rebuild their temple. So now we talked about this last week. Cyrus was not a believer, but you know what Cyrus did? He, gave, he paid homage to every God, hoping that one of them would be the right one. So he was a pantheist, right? He believed in all the, or polytheists, right? He believed in all these gods and he would give to all of them and worship all of them and hoping that one of them was the right one. Here's the problem. Jesus plus another false God makes you worshiper of false gods, amen? Because you have to worship him alone. So he gives, so they, so what do they do? They're, they've landed there and they're starting to do the work. They realize, okay, the altar's in place. We're worshiping the Lord, but now we need to start building stuff. So they take some of the resources and they hire masons and carpenters. And then people from Tyre and Sidon help them bring the logs, the cedar logs, the best logs are in Lebanon. And they, you know, they bring them down the water to bring them to them. So they bring, they use people who aren't believers to help them build it. And I truly believe that God allows this in scripture because in the end, the temple's for everyone, not just the Jews. Amen? In the end, it's for everyone, not just the Jews. Again, at this point, they're the chosen people, but God desires, again, to have a relationship with all of us. So they had permission from the king of Persia. He was just the opposite of King Nebuchadnezzar, who, again, had built an altar to himself. And Cyrus, will see in chapter 6, verse 3 through 5, that he authorized the Jew to build the temple at the Persian government's expense. And again, God can use even an idolatrous king in a nation to bring about his perfect will. Point number two, 
So we saw making the worship of the true and living God the priority above all else. Point number two, there is great joy in worship that comes from serving and obeying the Lord. Look at verse eight. Now, in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of the brethren of the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity of Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. So two months, the second year and the second month, more than likely this is as soon as they could have got it done because they had to gather all the materials first. Now remember, Cyrus sent them out with a lot of the gold and stuff that had been taken out of the temple originally that had been put into Babylon. He, he sent them back with all the stuff that belonged to the house of God, most of it anyway. So they had some of that, but they needed materials. So they took some of the resources and they hired masons and then they got the And so by the time they got everything there needed to be built, this probably about as soon as they could have got started. So as soon as they had everything they needed, they started to rebuild the temple. And I love that again, they had made the altar. They were already worshiping the Lord, but building the temple for the Lord was a priority. The altar and the sacrifice of worship to the true and living God has been reestablished. Now with great joy and worship, the work to rebuild the temple begins. Again, coming to the house of God at Jerusalem. Notice it says that. It says, coming to the house of God at Jerusalem. What's interesting about that is they're calling it the house of God, but it's not there yet. Because it's, it, was God's home, it was God's place even before it was built. And it's seen as the house of God even in its very beginning stages. Note that we are referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it was called the house of God when all that was there was rubble and an altar. And they're calling it the house of God. And you and I, as even more new believers, and we are just beginning to be works in progress. The cross is here. The Holy Spirit is here. Amen? And so we are already the house of God in a sense. We're the, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit from the day that we get saved. Now, of course, they're going to continue to work on that temple and to create it. And God's still doing a work in us. You're justified at salvation just as if you've never sinned. You're being sanctified, being set apart unto the Lord until the day you're glorified. We're all works in progress. Nobody arrives as a believer. Amen? We all have growing to do. We're referred to as the temple. And again, even in the very beginning stages where we belong to him, we're born again, we're new creations in Christ, we're redeemed, we're chosen, we're forgiven, we're still works in progress. But again, nonetheless, we're still his. And God sees that temple as finished before it's created. And he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? They appoint the Levites 20 years old. So they've got these young Levites. Again, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. And they've got them overseeing and, and serving in the rebuilding of the temple. Verse 9. Then it says, Then Joshua, again, he's the high priest, with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons, the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. So Yeshua is the high priest. He's, he and his sons served as overseers. So that shows you that there's not one person exempt from serving. Even the high priest is serving in the rebuilding of the temple. He doesn't just go off somewhere and contemplate, right? He's being used by the Lord. And there's none of us that isn't called to be a servant. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the what? Servant of all. And we're all called to be servants. We've all been given gifts. We're all vital parts of the body. 
And our God is a God of order. Look at verse 10. We're almost done here. So when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to their ordinances and of King David of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. So they're singing. So as the temple's being built, they got a worship team, they got music playing, and they're singing praise songs to the Lord while construction's taking place. And I love this. And what's interesting, they sing responsibly. So you know what that's like when we do at the end of, at the end of every service, we do the Lord bless thee, right? Responsibly means that someone would sing the first line, for he is good. And the others would say, for his mercy endures forever. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Amen. So they're singing responsibly. They're praising the Lord. And I love this. After 70 years in bondage in Babylon, they're worshiping the true and living God. The priests stood there in their apparel. The, the priests, they were not high priests. They were all white. And then the priests wore these bright colors. I don't believe they, you know, there's a, um, I'm vapor locking the breastplate with the 12 gems on it, which represent the 12 tribes. And there's all these colors. So you can just see that it's gone from all this rubble. They're rebuilding it. Worship is back. The praise of God is back. You can just imagine watching the hand of God working to restore Jerusalem to what God had called it to be and to rebuild the temple. They celebrated as if the work was done. They celebrated in a similar fashion when Solomon's temple was completed as they were just beginning to lay the foundation. They're already celebrating that it's going to be done as they're starting because they know that God is faithful to his promises. After 70 years in exile, there's a great reason to celebrate. And again, even though it would be a long road to completion, while this is a construction site, it's a place of glorious praise and worship, beautiful and colorful apparel, all coming together to use their gifts for the glory of God. Look at verse 11. And it says there, then all the people shouted with a great shout at the end of verse 11 there. And when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Again, for he is good. It's called the great Hallel. It's a great praise. It's found many times in scriptures in Psalm 136. And they responded and they praised God that the foundation had been laid, trusting that upon the foundation, his temple would be built. So point number two, there is great joy in worship that comes from serving and obeying the Lord. And then finally, don't look back. Look what it says in verse 12 and 13. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud with joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shouts of joy from the noise of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. So the people that had seen the first temple, these older men, they've come back and they see the rubble. And that beautiful place that many of them have maybe been carried off in captivity before it was destroyed, or those who saw it being destroyed on fire. And now they come back and they just see rubble. And all they've done is laid the foundation. And for them, they're comparing that to the completed temple. And because of that, because they're looking back, they're weeping and they're grieving. But those who had never seen the temple... Those who came from a place of idolatry, they're excited that the foundation was laid because that was the beginning of the temple. So for them, they're rejoicing that they're on their way and the people that had seen the temple 
were weeping because they knew that the new temple would not compare because they had seen the old temple and they were heartbroken. When I read the Bible, I try to play the movie in my mind. You've heard me talk about this. I kind of put myself in each person's shoes. So imagine being the old, one of those old guys who, when I was 10, 11, and 12 years old, was going to the temple and had seen it when I would walk back and forth to my house. And, and there it was at the center of Jerusalem. And it was the, something I would never forget. And then I come back and I see all the rubble and they're standing on a mountain. They look down and it's, it's all been destroyed. And, you know, there's, it's all been charred and, and he just looks at it and his heart is broken and he's grieving. Then I try to put my, myself in the shoes of a young man who's been in, are surrounded by idols for 70 years. And now he's just heard worship for the, maybe for the first time. And now they're rebuilding it and they've got altar and they're making sacrifices and God's being glorified and they just can hardly stand it. And see, the sad part is that sometimes we will allow the things in our past to keep us looking back when we need to be looking up. Amen? We can, keep, we can keep looking backwards. The old men, again, had spent their childhood there, and I imagine them standing on a hill and seeing the rubble, and as the music was playing and the young people were rejoicing, they couldn't help but compare the foundation and the people, again, over the glorious temple that was no longer there. The young men had never seen the temple. They grew up surrounded by pagan idolatry, and this was exciting for them. For them, the ability to sacrifice and openly worship the Lord, to see the beginning of the stages of the coming temple, the music playing, the people worshiping, the shouts of joy. The old men remember what was glorious. And some may have witnessed the Babylonians burning it to the ground. It says the prophet Haggai says this in Haggai chapter 2, Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? In comparison with it is not in your eyes as nothing. He's talking about these very people that they come back and see it. And for them, it's nothing. All these old fellows could think about was how small and shabby this foundation looked compared to the glorious temple of old. And there's a lesson we need to be careful of thinking that everything from the past was better. I remember the good old days, the good old days. And the Bible tells us, well, it's interesting because uh, my wife and I, we talked about this for about 20 minutes tonight and we were just weeping together. And I was really convicted. I said, babe, I think we keep looking back too much. And I'm not going to forget my son. That's not going to happen. We're not going to do that. But it's just so hard because we, we look at a picture on the wall and it's with all our kids and grandkids. And we remember three years ago before Mark went to heaven, our house was filled with all of them. And now the ones that are alive have all moved far away. Our grandkids all live far away. Our son that lived with us is now in heaven. And it's hard because you look back and think, man, I remember when our house was filled with all the joy of our kids and grandkids. I remember having Marky here, and it's hard not to just keep looking back. One of the things that we, my wife and I have said to each other all the time, we've got like four or five signs of it on our house, along with as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, is the best is yet to come. And I said to my wife, I said, do you still think that's true? And she says, no. Just be honest. How can the best be yet to come if Mark's not in it? That's hard. And so for these guys, this is, this is where they're at. They're like, well, we were here when it was beautiful. When it, we were here when we were worshiping the truth. And how is this ever going to be like that? And here's the prayer we need to pray. Lord, let me not be so stuck in the past that I can't be faithful in the future. Amen? We can't just keep running back to those things which are behind us. 
We need to be careful. It's not hard to fall in the trap of despising the days of small things. Zechariah says in Zechariah 4.10, for who has despised the day of small things? Zechariah wrote this when the temple was being built. Haggai will go on to say this temple whose foundation was just being built that in Haggai 2.9, the glory of this latter temple will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in its place, I will give peace. Do you know that later King Herod's going to come along and make this temple greater than Solomon's temple? But they never could have known it. And by the way, there's somebody else that's going to go into this temple and preach the gospel. Who's that? Jesus. And so often what we do is we see the mess that's in front of us, but we don't recognize all that God's going to do in it. And we can look behind us when things seem so much better. And how in the world can it ever be like that again? But guys, our God can make our future better than whatever's in our past because he's a faithful God. Amen? What if God wanted to do something new in your life? And yet you're stuck on how much better things were in the good old days. It says in Isaiah 43, Behold, I do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. That means our God can do anything. Amen? So that people could not discern the noise of the joy and the noise of the people uh, that were weeping. The profound scene showed the extent of mixed feelings amongst the people. The sight must have been very affecting. A whole group of people crying and a whole group of people cheering. And they're, they're seeing the same thing and having a total different reaction to the same thing. Some weep, some rejoice. The old men wept because they were looking back. The young men rejoiced because they were looking forward. Guys, don't look back. Don't compare it to yesterday. Be faithful today and look forward to all that God is going to do in you and through you. Amen? I believe the best days of this fellowship are in front of us. God has done great things in the past. I believe he's going to do greater still in the future. And I believe the same in my own life as well. Amen? So give thanks to the Lord for his good, make, making the worship of the true and living God the priority above all else. There's great joy in worship that comes from serving and obeying the Lord, and don't look back. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that we too would be eternally minded, that we would not get so caught up in the idolatry of the world around us that we grow comfortable, and we don't want to get out of our comfort zone. And Lord, I pray for all of us, that you would stir up the gifts you've given us, that you would fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit, that you would use us for your kingdom and for your glory. Lord, we're thankful that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're thankful that you have filled us with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we want to be obedient to the calling you've placed upon our lives. Help us there to be less of us and more of you. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said...